Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. Well, this morning, if you would, um, turning your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. We'll be working primarily with the verses 46 through 55, I think, or 60. I think we're going all the way to 60. Um, but as you're turning there, 1 Kings chapter 8, 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 46. It's page uh, 301 if you're in the right Bible. If you're in something else, then you just kind of have to look around and see if you can do it. If you're looking on your Kindle or your iPad or whatever, I'm not sure what page number that is. And so just 1 Kings chapter, chapter 8, verses 46 through 60. If you will also put your finger there and also turn into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. And keep your finger there because we'll kind of be going back and forth um, in, uh, with both of those. Uh, this morning. I just have a few minutes, and so I'm going to, I've had a chance to preach for a while, so you can get all of it that I've got that's been stored up for a long time. So if I go over, then, well, that's fine. We'll, we'll just go to Denny's together or whatever, you know, just kind of whatever, have fun. Um, this morning, I want to just kind of start off with First Kings sometimes is kind of... Um, it's kind of tough if you are not a history person. If you like the poetry books, like you know Song of Solomon, and you like Psalms, and you like all of that kind of stuff, and you're just kind of a touchy-feely type type of person, then you First Kings seems to be a little bloody, a little bit, you know, uh, just kind of violent and, and things like that. In fact, both sets of uh, First and Second Kings. Uh, really kind of lend you to the violent part of what the Old Testament was about. So as we go through this this morning, we really even almost transition out of the thought or the feeling of 1 Kings and the history part of it. But, but now we turn to a time of rest, a time of reflection, a time of just enjoying one another and what's going on. And I think about, as uh, David asked me to come and preach uh, this morning, I thought about that whole thing is that we just celebrated last week um, our 100 year anniversary. We were 100 years in February, but we waited till June um, in order to be able to celebrate it because going to the lake in, in February probably wouldn't have been a good idea. We waited till June and, and did it uh, when it was nice and warm. But thinking about what we've done here, even on this campus, being basically a year old here, and 100 years old as a, as a church collectively, there comes a time when we just need to sit and think about what God has done in our lives, where he has taken us, what he has brought us through, and where he's going to lead us to. That's really what this passage of Kings, uh, 1 Kings is, is all about. Solomon, as we learned last week, was a man who was uh, very wise because he had asked for wisdom and God granted that. Not only did God grant him the wisdom in order to be able to rule a country, but also gave him all the riches, everything that he had ever wanted and desired, God gave to Solomon. Now Solomon was the son of David. David was the king who had aspired to build the temple, to build a place where God could dwell among his people. Because David understood that where God was, he wanted to be. It's interesting that nowadays, sometimes in church work, we do almost exa exactly the opposite. Our lives are built around everything other than the church, and when the church plugs in, then that's okay, and it's for our convenience, 
But in 1 Kings, their mindset was everything revolved around the church. I mean, everything. We stopped doing everything. They didn't eat until they went to church. They, they didn't uh, go to work until they went to church. They didn't do anything until church part of their life was settled. So now we have in 1 Kings, David wants to build the temple for God to dwell. But God says, David, you can't. You're a, you're a warrior. You're a man with blood on your hands, and I want a person to build my temple, even though it will go through your line, your lineage, your ancestry, you can't do it because of the things that you've been a part of. But I will promise you this, that it will be built by your family, and it will be through your son Solomon. So because of what David did, Solomon reaped the blessing of what it was that God intended him to do. But David didn't realize that because he had passed on by the time the temple was built. You see, David knew the old tabernacle, the old skins, the old curtains, the old, uh, let's just take it up and put it down, put it, take it up uh, and put it down. Kind of like what you guys do here. It's kind of one of those things that every morning you get up here, those guys get up here really, really early and put out the flags and put out the coffee and put out the, the children's stuff and do all the volunteers. You guys are just putting it up and putting it down, putting it up and putting it down. One of these days, you'll be able to build a church and then you'll have all this stuff taken care of and all you have to do is just walk in and just enjoy yourself. But now it's a time of dedication and rest for First Kings. So let's look at what's going on. 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse uh, 46. And it says this, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and hand them over to the enemy and their captors deport them and the, uh, to the enemy country, whether distant or nearby. And when they come to their senses in the land where they are deported and repent and petition you in their captor's land, we have sinned and done wrong we have been wicked. And when they return to you with all of their heart, with all of their soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive, and when they pray to you in the direction of their land that you gave their ancestors, the city you have chosen and the temple I have built and the temple I have built for your name. What's going on here, and we start in and we just jump into to chapter 8, verse 46, if this is your first time, then it seems like this is really, really disjointed. What is happening is they're dedicating the temple. They just spent years and years and years building this temple, this elaborate temple that Solomon said, I will just pour all kinds of riches in so that God can have a dwelling place. And as they built and complete this temple, then they have a time of reflection and a time of dedication. It starts back in verse 22 when, when Solomon has a prayer for his people. And then we start in, for, for, or we jump in kind of the middle of his prayer in 46. And then in, um, in verse 54, he transitions from a prayer to a blessing. So he starts out talking to God, praying that what happens now will be all about you. And then he transitions over in 54, talking to the people. So he talks to God first, and then he talks to the people. In verse 46, where we pick up, this is the interesting thing. In the middle of Solomon's prayer, he begins a prophetic statement about what is going to happen to the people. And if you look, verses 46 through 49, that is all about things that are going to happen 
in the very near future. It's going to be the Babylonian captivity when, when the Babylonians are gonna come, they're gonna destroy the temple, they're gonna come and take the people back to Babylon. And in fact, all of the people are rejoicing. Here is a great time of dedication. Everything is going, going fine. We're sitting and we're relaxing. We're doing what it is that God wants us to do. We're enjoying prosperity because God is doing some incredible things. But then in the middle of his prayer, Solomon's prayer, he says, when they sin. So he knew something was gonna happen. He knew what was gonna go on. And then he says, and when they come to their senses and when they return and when they pray. So that is the mode in which Solomon Solomon sees the people of Israel doing the same thing that they've been doing year after year after year. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament even further in, in the Exodus, you find that the Israelite people, they want to follow God, but then they fall into sin, and then they go into captivity, and then they pray to, for God to release them or to, to rescue them. God does that, and then they enjoy a time of prosperity, and then prosperity leads to a time of, of just forgetting who God was, and then they fall back into sin, and they fall into captivity and then they, they ask for forgiveness. It's just this vicious cycle that they fell into. The Old Testament seems like they do this over and over again. Solomon in his prayer here is now reflecting on what God is doing and who God is and how powerful God is. Solomon, remember, he is the wisest man on earth at this time. In fact, the Bible says he is the wisest of all time. So he knows a little bit about human nature and what's going to happen. A couple of things that we want to look at even from the very beginning is I'm, I was flying into New York probably about four or five years ago and ever flown into LaGuardia Airport. It's really kind of a neat thing, but I, I just was enamored with, I, I'm a history guy. And so I was enamored with LaGuardia. I was, what is that? What is that? So I did a little research and found out that it was named after a guy named Fiorello LaGuardia. His um, claim to fame was that he was about five foot, four inches tall. He was the mayor of New York. Everybody loved him. In fact, he was one of those guys where the Democrat, he was a Republican, doesn't make any difference, but the Democrats and the Republicans both at that time loved him. It was one of those things where he could cross the aisle and have fun. Everybody, like he was, a, he was a, a man for the people. He always wore a carnation in his lapel, and so he, he had the nickname, the flower. Well, one of the things that was really interesting about Fiorello LaGuardia was that he would do all kinds of things for the people. He would ride on the, the New York City um, fire trucks in order to go to the fire so that he could help. He's just the mayor of the town, and he thought, well, I'll just go. He used to ride with the police as they go raid speakeasies. He would do all kinds of things. He would, um, oh gosh, he would, uh, he would give to the poor. He would do all kinds. In fact, one of the stories is that he, the newspaper went on strike. The, the New York newspaper went on strike. They could not um, have any newspaper. So what he did is he went to the radio station, and he started reading the funny papers to the kids so that they would be able to enjoy the newspaper. Paper. He was one of those guys that was kind of thinking outside the box in order to be able to, um, to just benefit the people that he was, he was leading. One snowy night, one cold snowy night, he decided that he was going to go and relieve one of the, the, the judges on the circuit court. And so he, he went into the court, let the, the judge go home to his family, um, and, and he said, I'll, I'll take over and I'll preside. As he was presiding, they brought in a little lady. And she was an older lady, and the charges were that she, theft. And he asked her, you know, she just kind of shuffled in. He asked her, now, what, 
what caused you to be charged with theft? And she said, well, I was in a grocery store down the street and my daughter's husband left us. And my daughter who has three kids, haven't, they haven't eaten in a week. And so I went to the grocery store just out of desperation and stole a loaf of bread so that my kids could eat. It moved Fiorello with compassion. And so he said, who brings this charge? And so the storekeeper was there and he said, why are you bringing a, a charge of theft for a loaf of bread? And the store owner said, this is a rough neighborhood that my store is in. And she must be punished because she must be made to be made an example of so that nobody else will steal anything from me. Fiorello, in his wise and personable way, he said, lady, tell me your story. And, and she did. And she said, well, it's because I had to. My, my kids were starving. My grandkids were starving. And, and I needed it. And so Fiorello says, lady, I can either give you 10 days in jail or a $10 fine. And as she was looking into her pocketbook, before she could even raise her head, he was reaching into his wallet and he pulled out a $10 bill and he put it in the bailiff's hand. He says, now your debt has been paid. And on top of that, I'm going to fine everybody in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a city that would condone such an action. And so by the time the courtroom, they'd taken all of the money from all the people, they'd raised like $47.50, including the shopkeeper who brought the charges had to pay the 50 cents in order to be able to give this money to this lady. It's an interesting thing that this guy, Fiorello LaGuardia, did this, and I think it, to me, it screams a little bit about the wisdom of Solomon, is that when you are in place or you have a chance to make a difference in the lives of those people around you, that you use wisdom and grace in order to be able to do what it is that you're in place to do. Now I say that because, or I say this whole thing for this. Fiorello LaGuardia, a man who we could care less about because we're not New Yorkers, or unless if you came from New York, you probably do know that. But Fiorello LaGuardia became the mayor of New York because of his father. As a little bit like because David and Solomon, Fiorello became the mayor of New York because his father did some incredibly evil things. In fact, he was so tied to organized crime that Fiorello thought as he was growing up that he would be drugged into that lifestyle and be part of organized crime. And because of all the things that his father did, he's trying to make up for all the things that his father did bad. He tried to make up for them in his own way to do things good. Now, this week in your your lessons. It's really about repentance. But Fiorello could not repent for his dad. It only took his dad to be able to repent for himself in order to be able to make a difference. But in the subsequent life that Fiorello LaGuardia lived, he tried to make things better, as better than his dad had made them bad. The same thing that Solomon is doing, the same thing that his dad's reputation was about being a womanizer or a murderer, all those things, Solomon tried to do his best in order to be able to make up for the things of his father. We can't do that. You can't cover up 
the sins of your father by repenting. Your father cannot do that for you. Nobody can do that except for you. And so this morning, we're going to talk about a little bit about repentance and our spot in repenting of what's going on. There is this sentence here in verse 46 through 49. When they sin against you, God, because there is no one who does not sin, and when you are angry with them and you hand them over to the enemy and their captors deport them to the enemy's country, whether distant or nearby, then when they come to their senses, Solomon knew that there's going to be a time when everybody comes to their senses and understands what it is that about their life that makes a difference in what's going on. As we look a little bit further, we see that Solomon in verse 40, uh, 54, then when Solomon finished praying this entire prayer and the petition of the Lord, he got up from kneeling, uh, from kneeling before the altar of the Lord and with his hands spread out towards heaven, he stood and blessed the whole congregation of Israel with a loud voice. And these are the three points that we wanna talk about. Number one, God gives us rest. In our situation and the things that we're doing, the places that we go, the lives that we live, God will always give us rest. In verse 56, blessed be the Lord. He has given rest to his people, Israel, according to all that he has said. Not one of the good promises, not one of, the, of all the good promises that he has made through his servant Moses has failed. May the Lord our God be with us as he is with you and our ancestors. May he not abandon us or leave us. Remember, this is, this is Solomon blessing his people. Number one, God gives us rest. There comes a time in our lives when we're just in the busyness of all the things that are happening. We're trying to make our family, trying to do our job, trying to please people. We are just going, going, going. But God gives us a time of rest as he prescribed to even Moses. And that's a day of Sabbath. Every one of us is granted a Sabbath and that's where we need to take. In fact, what's going to happen to the Babylonian captivity is this. The reason why they were in, in captivity for 490 years was because over the years, they refused to recognize the Sabbath that God had given to them. And what does that mean? Is that for seven, for seven days or six days, you're supposed to work, and on the seventh day, you're supposed to rest, right? So many of us say, okay, that's fine. And we do all kinds of work, and because of our job, sometimes we have to work on Sunday. Well, we're supposed to take, supposed to take a Sabbath during the week and just rest and reflect on God. But what was happening is that the people, they just kept on doing and working and being a part of whatever it was that they were going. In fact, they thought, if I work one more day, I can make a little bit more money and do a little bit more stuff with my family and provide for my family. So it seemed like a good idea, but God had already planted rest into our lives. And for 490 years, not only the seventh day was prescribed for a Sabbath, but one in seven years was prescribed for a, um, for a Sabbath. So you go six years, and then all of a sudden that last year, the year of Jubilee, you would just rest and have fun and enjoy yourself in that seventh year. But what the people of Israel were doing, they decided that I could work for six years, and in that seventh year, that's all profit. And I could do things for, for that seventh year and make all this money and do all of this stuff, even though God had said, you need rest. You need to take time for yourself. You need to reflect on me. You need to do these things. This is the plan that I've put in there. And they 
put it aside. They said, God really didn't know what he was talking about. So for 490 years, they forsook the Sabbath year. Now, if you do, if you do the math, that's 49 years. And so they were in captivity for 49 years. Or they were in captivity for 70 years. 70 years. What I'm saying is this. God's going to take what God's going to get no matter how it is that he gets it. So we might as well be very, very gracious to him and do what it is that he asks us to do. So if God tells us to have a Sabbath, he's doing that for our own benefit. And if we neglect to do that, then God's gonna take it one way or another. And that's where our lives come into effect. Sometimes for us, we make some terrible, terrible choices. And God says, later on, I am gonna draw you back to myself. In fact, in verse 48, or 54, 58, so that he causes us to be devoted to him. He wants us to rest. He wants us to reflect. He wants us to do what it is that he called us and set us on this earth to do. And if we don't do it, he will cause us to do that. And so this is the three, these are the three things that we want to look at. So that he causes us to be devoted to him, to walk in all of his ways, and to keep his commandments and statutes. And I find this very, very well illustrated in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. And Jesus went on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up, and he followed him. Now, it's interesting that in this day and age, in the 21st century, in 2022, guys, we would never do that, would we? We would never. If we're sitting at our office desk doing whatever it is that we're doing, whether we're teaching, whether we're doing accounting, whether we're doing whatever office work of whatever, whether we're out in the field, whatever, we're, whatever it is we're doing, some guy just walks up to us and says, follow me. And that's the words of the scripture. He just says, follow me what would you do? Would you just jump up automatically and say, okay, go on? No, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. We would ask, well, how much do I get paid? Do I have vacation? My 401k, do I, does it roll over into your plan or whatever? We'd have a lot of different questions. What, what would I be doing? But not Matthew. From face value, the scripture is kind of like what the dedication of Solomon is all about, is that God says, I want you to do and follow me, follow my statutes, follow my commands, follow my ordinances. When Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament and he says to Matthew, follow me. Now we know a little bit about Matthew because Matthew is a, is a Hebrew or is a, a, an Israel uh, name, is a Jewish name. So what happened was that that all Jewish young boys, whenever they were growing up, their intent and their idea was that they would serve somehow in the temple. That was their highest regard. That is their aspiration of sorts. That's the job that they want. They didn't want to be rock stars. They didn't want to be baseball players. They didn't want to be uh, firemen or policemen. They wanted to serve in the temple. That was their highest job that they thought was even attainable. 
And so every Jewish young boy who grew up learned his scriptures backwards and forwards. And now they just had the Old Testament, but what they did have, they memorized and they knew and, and, and they, could, they, could, they could tell you scripture backwards and forwards. And what happened was priests would come by and they would go from temple to temple, from town to town, and they would gather disciples that would follow them and they would go around. Uh, to different towns and they would set up and they would teach in those towns. And the idea was that all of these little boys, they would present themselves to this priest and they would try to make themselves as accommodating and as, as informed and as smart as they possibly could. The priest would ask questions of these, these young Jewish boys. And as the, the Jewish boys would answer the question, then the priest would pick and choose which boys to be his disciples. And he would say, would you be my disciple? It's kind of like in the schoolyard. Remember when you used to choose up teams and you just didn't want to be the last one? You didn't care if you weren't the first, and that'd be great, but you, you'd be in the middle. You just didn't want to be the last one. Because what happens to the last one? The last one, nobody says anything, but everybody thinks, oh, nobody wants me. I must not be any good. I, I, I must be worthless. So as a Jewish young boy who grew up and is now a tax collector, because it says it in Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector. He's sitting in his tax booth. He's making money hand over fist. He's making more money than any of his friends ever thought about being, uh, getting because he was a tax collector. And that's what tax collectors did was just make more money than anybody else. In fact, People hated tax collectors because basically the tax collectors were stealing money from everybody else. The tax collecting system was this. In Rome, they charged $5 tax. You know, it was a denarii, but we'll just say $5 because we understand that. If, if Rome charges $5, then Matthew at his tax collector's booth, he charged $5. But he, did, he had the ability, he had the right, he had the privilege, he had the, he had the wherewithal from Rome to say, I'll charge you $10. So he sends $5 off to Rome and he puts $5 into his pocket. But that wasn't the common occurrence. Most of the times for tax collectors, if Rome charged $5, the tax collectors would charge 10, 20, $50. Send $5 off to Rome, pocket $45. Just an incredible money-making machine. But it was coming from their own people. You see, Matthew was a Jew living in a Jewish town, grabbing Jewish money and doing it all in the name of Rome. And the Jewish people hated Rome, but he was in the middle of it. He knew what was going on. He was, in fact, he was blatant. He sat at his own tax collectors. He could have hired somebody to take the taxes and just sat back and been incognito, but he sat at his tax collector's booth and he raked in all of that money. He was a Jewish young man, steeped in Jewish tradition, knew the scriptures backwards and forward. In fact, he knew that there was a Messiah that was going to be coming. He knew what the scriptures said. As Matthew was sitting in a tax collector's booth, Jesus walked by and Matthew opened his heart. And Jesus spoke into his heart. He said, follow me. You see, Matthew had been living a life that was contrary to the way he had been raised. He was raised in the Jewish tradition, but now he was living a Roman lifestyle. He was all about the money, all about the prestige, all about all the things other than the temple, all about culture, 
rather than church. He was all about the world rather than God. But yet he had been raised the right way. The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go and he'll never depart from it. Now, some of you think, oh, you don't know my kid. I trained him up in church, but they're so wayward. Never stop praying for them. Never stop praying for them. It'll be because of your prayers that are answered by God that will bring them back. You see, Scripture never returns void. Somewhere in the back of your child's mind, your grandchild's mind, Scripture will never, ever go away. And he will, or she will, eventually come to the senses and be restored back to God. You have to believe that because God's promises never, ever are unfulfilled. It says that in 1 Kings. And so as we pray for our young ones, we pray for our family members to return to God. Never, ever stop. Because when you stop, what you're saying is that, okay, I've already considered them a lost cause. They're never going to come back. So I might as well just give up on them. You're playing God. We can't do that. We just say, okay, I'm just going to be as faithful to God as I can possibly and just continue to pray and continue to pray. And see what happens with Matthew as he was growing up in that Jewish tradition. He knew scripture but yet he was living a lifestyle that was totally opposite of the way he was raised. I wonder why. I wonder why. Maybe he was that kid who studied so hard in the scripture and said, okay, the next priest that comes by, I want to be, in his, I want to be one of his disciples. And I want to follow him and I want to work in this church, but nobody ever seems to pick me because I never seem to be good enough in order to be able to fulfill God's plan. What is wrong with me? And so maybe he just got disgruntled and said, I'm done with this church thing. It doesn't seem to be working out with me. I might as well just go all in on this world secular job and make more money and have more fun and do whatever for the rest of my life. And that's what he did until Jesus entered his life. And Matthew was smart enough to have his heart soft enough and open enough for when the Messiah came and spoke into him, he knew exactly who he was. That's the reason why it seems so weird that Matthew would just get up and walk away from his job. It's because he had been looking for a Messiah to fulfill all of the things that he had been looking for. You see, he'd been living a life that was full of money and full of probably all kinds of things, but it just wasn't filling the void. And then when Jesus walked in, he opened his heart. He says, I will follow. But he not only did that, he opened his home. As we look on in verse um, uh, 10, while he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat and Jesus, with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees, church people, came and saw this and asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, Jesus said, it is not those who are well who need to, a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what, is meant, what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What happened with Matthew is that not only did he open his heart, he opened his home. He said, I've found the meaning of life in this Jesus, and I want Jesus to come into my home come into my heart first, come into my home, and now I'm gonna bring all my friends to my home. I'm gonna pay for dinner. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get my friends in front of Jesus so that they can be changed and learn about who this God is that I have learned about now and found. That's the way it is for us. 
Solomon, in his great wisdom, is trying to tell his people is that God is a God who never fails. God is a God who does things that he says he's going to do. Now we want you to open your heart, understand what it is about your life. But in Matthew's case, open his heart, open his home, and then in his life, he opened his hand. And we find that in chapter 10 of Matthew, starting in verse 1. Look at that real quick because I want you to see that. First couple of verses of chapter 10. It mentions all the 12 disciples that were following Jesus. Now, do you see in those verses, it shows, in fact, let me just read a little bit. Uh, summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them the authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, out of that list of the 12 people, do you notice anything different or particular about one person in that list. Matthew. Why Matthew? Because it says he's a tax collector. Okay, nobody else does it say, you know, there's Simon, who is type A, person, type A personality and just crazy and gets out on everybody's nerve. There's Peter, who is just kind of a crazy guy. Andrew, his brother, who follows everybody. He doesn't say, and he doesn't give commentary on anybody else but Matthew. And he lists him as a tax collector, a sinner, Somebody who culture rejects, the Israelite culture rejects. Who wrote the book of Matthew? All right, not a trick question. I can wait here until I get the answer. Who wrote the book of Matthew? Matthew wrote the book of Matthew. And he wrote Matthew the tax collector. Now, if I'm writing the book of Daryl, I'm going to put down the best things about Daryl. Daryl was the tallest guy. He was the smartest. He was the most handsome. Whatever it is that he, I take, I would make myself as look as possible, good as possible. But Matthew didn't. He said, Matthew, the tax collector. I think he had two reasons in mind. Number one, he wanted to never forget where he came from because he had chosen a life that was contrary to God. But yet when he came to his senses and he opened his heart and let God come in, it transformed him for the rest of his life. But not only that, he wanted 2,000 years later, for those of us who don't know Matthew or didn't know Matthew, had no chance of ever meeting Matthew, to know that even, even God will take the worst sinner and transform him into a hand that he could use. You see, Matthew opened his heart and let Jesus in, opened his home and invited his friends to meet Jesus. And then he opened his hand and he said, do with me what you want. My hand is at your disposal. Just do what you want. You see, Matthew wasn't a writer. He was a tax collector. He was probably pretty good at numbers, but he probably wasn't very good at grammar. And they might have been, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and God's guidance, he wrote the book of Matthew. So that 2,000 years later, as we read it, we can get inspiration and understanding in what it means back in 1 Kings. Now, as we finish up, turn back to 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 61. Well, verse 60. May all the peoples of the earth know that the Lord is God, there is no other. 
Why do we read all of this? Why do we read and try to understand what scripture says to us? In verse 61, it gives us the whole understanding. But wholehearted, be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord our God and walk in his statutes and keep his commands as it is today. With us and Matthew, we understand that our lives started at birth and will end in eternity with either Jesus or without Jesus. You see, we are created to live in fellowship with God. And it's our understanding and it's our decision and it's our ability to choose today if we will follow Jesus or not. When we open our heart to say, Jesus, come into my heart, he will come into us. Because back in verse um, 58, it says, so that he would cause us to be devoted to him, to walk in all of his ways and to keep his commands, his statutes, and his ordinances. God will do that if we just turn it over to him and say, use me in any way you want. So I open my heart and ask Jesus to come in. I'm gonna open my home. The things that God has blessed me with, everything that I have, I'm gonna use it for his glory and for their good. I'm gonna do whatever it is that God has given to me and say, I'm gonna make sure that my friends are placed before Jesus so that they can make a decision to follow Jesus if they need. And then in the last part of what even Solomon is trying to tell us is that when we open our hand, our experience is guided by God. Our lives, from the very beginning, God didn't say, oops. He didn't say, I don't know what's going on there with that guy. I don't, I don't know. But every experience in our life leads us to today. So the things that you've been through, some of us have been wayward in our lives and we're having to repent and come back to God. We can't do that for somebody else. Somebody can't do that for us. We have to do it for ourselves and come to a time when we say, I'm gonna open my heart to Jesus and I'm gonna repent of my sins and I'm gonna follow him from this day forward. So when I open my hand, I'm just saying, God, use me in whatever way you want me to. You've put me through these life experiences in order to shape me and mold me to where I am right now. When we become a child of God today, then it means that God gives us the ability to speak into everybody else's lives. When we open our hands and say, God, use me. Let me write a book. Not physically, but write a book in somebody else's life that as they're struggling with something, that may be something you struggled with, with in your life. That is why God prepared you to do what it is that you're doing. That's why he let you go through and make those decisions that you made early in life, now that you're sorry for, repenting of, and now God has placed you in a point where you can make a difference in somebody else's life. God can use everything about your life right here in this day and age. The wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Matthew is all reflected from the wisdom of God. So when we do what it is that Solomon and Matthew do is to just open our hearts and say, God, use me. Open my home, whatever I have, use me. Open my hand. God, I have the ability to do all of this stuff. I'm gonna do it for you. It will make all the difference in the world for us. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. 
To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.